delving into and hopefully addressing with a deeper, deeper perspective than perhaps we were familiar with in the past. This week's Parsha has some stories which, frankly, are not so well known, uh, but they're fascinating. They're kind of complicated, and that's part of why they're not so well known. The, the story never gets really developed fully, so it's a little bit, it gets glossed over a little bit. But we're going to study this section line by line, and I, I hope, I think, we're going to walk away with a few important takeaways. I guess let's start with maybe a question. Anyone here ever feel burnt out? <laughs> Need I ask the question? Okay, we're all human. Thank God. I'm glad we're not talking to robots here. Good. So we all feel burnt out at times. And this parsha, in this section we're going to read over here, we are going to read about what I think we could describe as Moshe's burnout. Moshe is feeling burnt out. More so than any other section in the Torah, Moshe's frustration uh, comes to the fore. And what we're going to try to do is try to understand where it's coming from, where it's coming from in him. And through that, hopefully apply some practical lessons to ourselves as well, okay? So let's begin. We're on the bottom of page 786. It's Parshas Baaloscha, uh, 786, chapter 11. Chapter 11, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, appropriate, okay. Okay, so, uh, okay, so 786, you all with me? Or 786 or 787? Let's begin at the, with the first verse, okay? So, almost there, yeah. Okay, good. So, by Ha'am Kimis Onanim, okay? So the nation... They translate over here, the people took to seeking complaints. That's not the literal translation. The literal translation is they were like complainers. And we'll get a little bit deeper in terms, in terms of the, word, the roots of this word misononim is. But it seems like there were some complaints. Okay? Rabaz ne Hashem. It was evil in the ears of God. Vayishma Hashem. And God heard. Vayichar apo. And God was angry. Vativar vam eish Hashem. And the fire of God burnt against them. Vatochal biktse hamachane. And God's fire consumed at the edge of the camp. Okay, so let's, this is this verse. There's a lot here and it's very confusing, right? So what does it mean, first of all, that they were like complainers? We also don't even know what they're complaining about. All we hear is that they were like complainers. What were the, you know, what, what, we want to hear it. You know, call it, you know, you call this, you, you, fill in, you fill in the complaint. What is the complaint? Doesn't tell us. Just says they were like complainers, okay? Could be, could be. I mean, that's a fair assumption if they're Jews, right? That's probably what they're complaining about, but it doesn't say explicitly. It's interesting. Soon... And like complainers, right? That's, 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 that's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, and what does it mean? Why were they punished with death? Obviously, a very severe type of punishment, which I know we've spoken about in the past, is the world, in the ancient world, was certainly, this was much more the norm. Capital punishment was a way of life. And certainly in the desert, certainly in the desert, I just want to, and maybe we'll start here, you know, their, their proximity to God in the desert, it was a double-edged sword. You know, in the desert, they were experiencing daily miracles. What were some of the daily miracles? Man, man exactly. The manna, man. We had these clouds of glory. There were endless water coming from a rock. Endless miracles, right? They were in extreme proximity to God. So on the one hand, that's great. But it's a two, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. For, for, I'll give you an example, an analogy. You know, when, when the kids are playing outside, we have, thank God, a whole bunch of kids on, on, on Lincoln, and they're all running around outside. And let's say the kids do something a little dangerous, okay? So if I'm the one parent there, I'll tell them, hey, stop doing that, right? I'll make them stop. But which child out of all the children is going to get more of a finger wagging? My child. Well, not the eldest. The eldest is asleep probably. But, <laughs> uh, but, but you know, whatever, my child, right? Because, because of our closeness, right? Because I love them, I'm also going, there, there's also going to be more severe consequences to ensure that they do what's right. So similarly in the desert, we find this consistent um, trend where the Jewish people are on the one hand, the recipients of incredible, incredible goodness from God, but that comes at a price. It comes because of their closeness. And therefore, when they do something wrong, if you and I do something wrong, 
a lightning bolt doesn't come down and hit us. But if you are right there in God's palace, so to speak, right next to God, of course the punishments are going to be much more severe and much more immediate. So on the one hand, we are, we're seeing the, the, the negative side of it, but it's an re- expression of their intense and incredible closeness that, and relationship that they have with Hashem. Okay? Fine. So let's, let's, let's try to understand a little bit um, what exactly is going on over here. So first of all, um, what does this word misononym actually mean? What does the word onane mean? Anyone familiar with the word onane? Should be familiar to you. I mean, unfortunately, should be familiar. Leah, you know that word. <laughs> onanism? On, not onanism, no. Um, <laughs> but over here, a Hebrew word, onain. A Hebrew word, onain, is that the first stage of Shiva, when a person loses a loved one, before Shiva begins, a, a mourner is in a state called onainut, or a current person is called an onain. It is the most extreme level of mourning. The, there's the most extreme, most strict laws during that first stage when they're called an onane during that first stage. And then after the burial, it transitions into something called shiva, which is obviously many stringencies, but less strict. So Rav Samson Rafael Hirsch suggests that what they were, Am, and this addresses your question, they were like onanim. They were like mourning. They were like they were in mourning. Now they weren't actually in mourning because they didn't lose any loved one. What does it mean they were like in mourning? Who were they mourning? Egypt. Not Egypt, but over here he suggests they were actually mourning themselves. And we'll see that theme consistently. We'll see that basically they were saying, our life is not a real life. We're not connected to the rest of the world. We don't have regular food. We don't have regular clothing. We don't have regular interactions. They were mourning themselves. And you can understand then why God is responding so severely. Yes, you're right. You don't have a normal life. You have a ridiculously amazing life. But they didn't see that. They only saw the negative. They said, oh, we want to get pizza. We don't want man. We want to have like, you know, we want to go and live in like a nice hotel or whatever, nice place. We don't want clouds of glory. They were getting the, the royal treatments, but they were upset. They basically said, we're, we're cut off from the rest of the world. We are onanim. And so they were kimis onanim. They were like as if they were mourning as if mourning themselves. That's how Samson or Fal Hirsch understands this, this passage. Um, they were lacking in appreciating the goodness, the goodness. You know, I'll just mention one other approach. Uh, the Ramban, Nachmanides, suggests that he says there is no particular complaint. And we'll see this theme is also going to be developed as we continue. He says, you know, when, when the, 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 the sin was that they were kvetchers. You know, there are fetchers and there are doers. Like we all see, well, there's a third category. People don't see an issue, right? There's some people don't realize anything's wrong. God bless them, right? Then there's the rest of us who recognize something's wrong. And we have two options. We could either do something about it, be proactive and try to change it. Or we could be Kimis Onanim. We'll be, it's, it's not about it's not, whether it's this thing or that thing. It doesn't matter, right? The, the, Nachmanides says it's not about the particulars of what they're complaining about. It's that they acted like fetchers. And that's, that, that was the issue. It wasn't, again, whatever, whatever the complaint was, was immaterial. The point is that it was a state of mind. Yes, ma'am. Can you tell where, where we are in history? We, we left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea in the desert. That's right. That's right. They already received the Torah. They're on their way. They're marching to the Holy yeah, Land. David. Right. Thank you. Absolutely. They're marching. They're, they're, they're Yes. It is, it, is in some, it is somewhat difficult. They are not in, amongst civilization. It's strange. It's difficult. There are challenges. But, you know, when you think of the big picture... This is incredible. They were just slaves. They just received a set of laws that would change the course of history. They're about to go to a promised land, right? I mean, next week it's going to be derailed, but we're not there yet, right? They are, this is incredible. And at the same time, they, they decide, as we all do, think about it. You know, our life. Think about our life compared to our parents' or grandparents' life. That's all you have to say, right? Is that we, uh, the life we live is just incredible, 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 you know, incredible to, to compare to anything else. And yet, we still find ourselves at times... 
Quetching, complaining. quetching, complaining, right? That is the sin. Okay, so again, Rafur says they were complaining about themselves. Nachmanides, Ramban basically says, no, they were just acting like fetchers. That is a sin in of itself. What's our perspective on life? Do we see the positive or do we even see, it's okay to see the problems, but are we proactive? Are we constructive about it? Or are we kimisonim? Are we kvetchers? God does not want the people of kvetchers. Okay, let's keep on reading. Vayitzaka Amel Moshe, verse 2. We're on page 788 or 789. Vayitzaka Amel Moshe, the nation cries out to Moshe. And Moshe does what he always does. He steps in. He saves the Jewish people. And the fire is subdued. Vayikra Shem HaMakom HaHu Tav'era. That place was called Tav'era. Okay, the, the root of that word is Bez Ayin Reish. Why? Ki Vam. Because it kindled against them, Eish Hashem, a fire of God. So they call the place, basically they call the place that they just traveled from, the place of fire, the place of a burning fire because of their experiences. Okay, so far so good. So if you were the Jewish people, you just complained, a fire came down from heaven and said, hey, don't be complainers. What, what, like, what's the next day? What do you do the next day? You stop complaining. I don't care what you do. You stop complaining. Clearly, God is telling them this is not an appropriate perspective. This is not the way to go about things, Okay. Nonetheless, let's keep on reading. Let's see what happens. It gets worse. Pasuk Daud, verse 4. Vasafsuf, Ashir Bikarbo. Okay, the Asafsuf, the word Asaf means. Anyone know what the word Asaf means? Uh, sorry? To gather. Excellent. To gather. So what this group is, this is a group of people who gathered within the Jewish people. We have a tradition that although, you know, the Jewish people left Egypt, a whole bunch of people joined them as well. Think about, you know, Egypt is the superpower in the region and all these miracles take place. Their slave nation leaves. It's an incredible thing. You could think about, you know, when people hear the news, they're moved by that. And so we have a tradition that many people joined the Jewish people as they left Egypt, either immediately as they left or after they crossed the sea. But one way or another, they were not alone. There were others, and they're called the Asaf Suf, the ones who were gathered with them. Okay, so it's this group. What do they do? Ashir which were among the Jewish people, Hitavu Tava. They, what does it mean, Hitavu Tava? Tava means to lust, to desire something. Okay, so it's interesting. So it doesn't just say Hitavu, which would mean they desired something. How do they translate in the English? It says that they cultivated a craving. Excellent. In other words, if you're following in the Hebrew, you'll see there's a double terminology of a craving. And what does that mean? Why, do, why is it being emphasized? Why is there a double terminology of craving? Anyone here have ever craving for something? Yes, we all do. Again, we're still humans, right? But there are two types of cravings we could have. There's one which is a natural impulse. You know, you might have had a bad day. You have a craving for chocolate. You might be tired. You have a craving for a coffee. You might be whatever. You have a craving for something or a craving for a hug. Whatever it might be. You have a craving for something. That's, that's normal. Or as they beautifully translate, they cultivate a craving means someone who goes ahead and I don't necessarily feel this way, but I am fanning the flames of my desires, right? You see, there's a major difference between the two. One is a natural human reaction. The other is to say, I don't actually desire something, but I want to desire something. And I basically, I want to, I spend time like looking at things which will make me become more desire, you know, desiring. I, I, I spend time thinking about, I want to, want to feel that, that passion, that drive, right? It's one thing to have a natural response. It's another thing to, to fan the flames of that natural response, right? In other words, you might have a craving for chocolate. Okay, so, you know, we, we, you know if it's like, okay, that's, that's a benign craving. Let's say we have a craving for something which is not so good. It's a little unethical. It's something which is, which is not, so, uh, not so great for our, for our inner, you know, sense of self. So we try to avoid those things, right? We don't, we don't pursue those things. If a person has a gambling issue, they don't spend time in a casino, right? I mean, that would be, that would be hitavu ta'ava. They're basically going to a place which fans the flame 
of their desires. That's, and that, it's one thing to desire is human. To cultivate, to pursue, to not be conscientious about our normal impulses, that's already a problem. Okay? You're with me? Right? So that's hitavu tava. So uh, the people are desiring desires. Vayashuvu vayivku gam b'nei Yisrael. And see, look what happens. And it comes out that the Jewish people, meaning not just this group which added themselves to the Jewish people, but now the Jewish people, they influence the Jewish people, right? In other words, if the people around you want something, oftentimes you want something, right? You know, that's, that's how trends work, right? Some of this person's wearing this type of clothing. You feel like you have to wear this type of clothing. This person has this type of simcha. You have to have this type of simcha, right? Do you really need it? No, but we're, 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 we're influenced by our neighbors, right? So, what do they say? Who will feed us meat? Okay, so now the Jewish people, not just this group that added to them, they are influenced by their neighbors, and now they themselves are saying, who's going to feed us meat? In other words, they want, they want meat. They want meat. Okay, now what food do they have at the time? They have the manna. That's right, they have the manna. Okay, so we'll come back to the manna in a moment. Let's see their actual... What is it? So we'll talk about that in a moment. We'll talk about it in a moment, but right now let's just see what their actual complaint is. If you look at verse 5, Pasuk Hay, Zacharnu es adaga asher nochal b'mitzrayim chinam. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt for free. Now, did they eat fish for free in Egypt? What, what was their status in, in Egypt? They were slaves, right? It's like, I, I'm embarrassed. You know, I, can't, I won't even say. You know what I'm going to say. But like, if you're a slave, if you're in a camp and you say, oh, we had free soup. Free, it's, I can't even say the words. It's disgusting. I mean, what, what are they talking about? They were enslaved and they're saying we had free fish. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd what they're saying. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, we'll come back to that in a moment. Then they continue with the long, the menu. Esakishuim, the cucumbers, vesavatichim, the watermelons, thank you, vesachatzir, vesavitzalim, vesashumim, you know, onions, garlic, different things like that. They said, we had all these things for free. And you scratch your head, you're like, what are you guys talking about? That's right, right? So the Ibn Ezra says, Okay, you know, some commentators try to give them some, you know, uh, you know the Ramban, let's, let's quote the Ramban. The Ramban says that, uh, that uh, you know, that they basically it was, the, as slaves, they were able to take like some of the extras from their masters. Okay, still, it's very bizarre. I'm a slave and fine, I get to eat the scraps on the floor that's called free. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, right? It's a very bizarre verse. You're with me, right? You agree? I think it's very strange. So Rashi quotes a medrash, a medrashic teaching, which says something which, which, at face value also seems very strange, but I think we have to understand it deeper. What does Rashi say? What did the Midrashim say? It says, Chinam free mimitzvot. They were free from obligations. They are free from, mit- not just any obligations, they are free from mitzvot. So what does that mean? What does that mean? They were free from mitzvot. They had the fish and they ate the fish as they were free. It's true, they didn't have mitzvot back then, right? But what does this, what does this actually mean, right? Right? It's, it's a strange medrash, but I, I think if we understand a little bit deeper, I think we'll understand what this verse is saying. So, uh, Rebbe, um, uh, Professor Nechama Leibowitz suggests as follows. You know, she says that, you know, when, when a person is, um, when a person is living a meaningful life, when a person is living a meaningful life, when things are, are on fire, you feel like you, you have a purpose, right? You feel like you're, you're driven. You wake up in the morning, I know what I want to do, I know what I want to accomplish, I know that I have this mitzvah to do, I have this thing I want to accomplish, whatever it might be. All the trivial things in life don't really bother us, right? Don't really bother us, right? But when we feel um, overburdened, when we feel like everything is weighing on our shoulders, then those small things do bother us, right? Think about it. You know, when, when do you complain about, I don't know, fill in the blank, the thing that bothers you, right? 
on a bad day. On a good day, you don't notice it, right? On a good day, your back doesn't, all of a sudden your back doesn't hurt on a good day. It might be it's still hurting, but you're about to go to a wedding of a loved one, whatever, you're about to do something you enjoy, you're doing something you're passionate about. When you're having a rough time, all of a sudden those small things, right? All of a sudden they're, they're big, they bother you, right? So that's what the Medrash is saying over here. They're saying all of a sudden they're bothered by a lack of fish. They're eating mud. We'll talk about the mud in a moment. It's amazing. It's incredible, right? It's basically, as we'll see, you know, it, it feeds them perfectly. They have everything they need. But they're not feeling driven. They're not feeling on fire. They're not feeling like they need to, they're, they're waking up in the morning with a passion. And therefore, they're complaining about the small things. So what are they really complaining about? They're saying, and I'll take a question in a second. They're saying that the mitzvahs are a burden. The mitzvahs are weighing on us. When we were free of mitzvahs, when we didn't have that burden, these things didn't bother us. But now that we have this burden, it's not only that they're not feeling pa- you know, inflamed and passionate. They're saying that the things that we're commanded to do, our, 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 our mission in life right now, it doesn't sit with us. Brachos, Shabbos, kosher, it's too much. It doesn't feel comfortable. And therefore, had we been free of mitzvahs, had we not had those restrictions, we would not be complaining about these things because it wouldn't bother us. But because we feel like our spiritual life is a burden, it's not free, right? There's, so because of that, that's why all these things are bothering them. So that's what the Medrash is saying. It's saying that had they been free of mitzvos, they would not be complaining. Had they been free, had they not felt like uh, burdened by all the commandments, then none of these things would bother them because they're burdened by it. That's what, so it doesn't mean that they're actually free. They, they were not free in Egypt. The difference in Egypt is that at least in their own personal lives, yes, they were slaves, but at least in their own personal lives, they could do whatever they want. And now they feel encumbered by the mitzvos. It's too much. And that's why all these small things are starting to bother them. Yes? I was just thinking, if they, in such close proximity to God's presence, are not feeling like the mitzvos are an opportunity and they're feeling like a burden, what does that say for us who are so far from Hashem's presence? It's such hard work. Yes, 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 you're absolutely right. it, It was handed to them and they still didn't. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It, 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 is, it is amazing. You know, uh, you know the, I guess two, two points. You know, one, one, I guess we'll say rational and one uh, more, more mystical. Um, you know, on the one hand, as the Rambam makes this point in other places, it, it may have been too much too fast for them. You know, the Rambam's approach to understanding this generation is saying that you can't go from being slaves to have this whole new way of life where you have this burden, again, what we'll call responsibility, but a big responsibility. You know, it takes time. And the notion that, as we'll read in next week's part, that the generation had to die, you know, is that a punishment or is that almost like a necessary, like a, not even a consequence, it's, it's necessary. It was that they are not fit. You can't, they, they didn't have it in them to have that type of transition. That, that's one way of looking at it and gives us a little bit more uh, solace that, okay, even though we don't have those miracles, okay, but nonetheless, we, we, we are generations away from that. Simil, in a similar vein, but again, much more mystical, Rav Dessler talks about the fact that, you know, there are, you know, just like in our brain, if there is something we think about, like uh, an, some, something we, we exercise once, we do a certain exercise, it creates a certain pathway in our brain, right? And then we do it another time. It creates, a, you know, let, let's say uh, we're, we're trying to memorize something. So you read something once, it creates a certain pathway in your brain. You read it again, the pathway gets a little bit stronger. You read it, say it again, gets stronger, right? You say it over and over and over again, and eventually you have this super highway that like it's just there. It's immediately there, right? So Rav Dessler explains the spiritual world in the same way. And that is that, you know, the reason that we learn so many of these stories is because through their actions, they created pathways for their descendants. Is this and th- after the Ten Commandments? This is after the Ten Commandments, yes. Oh, yeah. that's when it says to keep the Sabbath. That's right, that's right, that's in right. In the beginning, they wouldn't... They didn't have those things, exactly, right. exactly, yes. So I, w- I was living in Israel when the Soviet Jews came in a big way to Israel, and it's very similar in that way. 
And the Soviet Jews, they were given everything, right? They were given housing, they were given jobs, everybody in Russia. But they were ridiculous. I mean, the housing was bad and the jobs, they didn't do anything. They came to Israel and they really, right. okay, they were given a lot in right. terms of, you know, the dormitory and the Axonia, the thing. They were given, uh, what's it called, you know, when you learn Hebrew. Right, right, right old time, yeah. But they complained about <laughs> everything. And they remembered how good it was in Russia. In Russia, in Russia I had right. an apartment and have to pay for I guess you just address, are they really Jewish? They are really Jewish, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Out of slavery, the first generation. Right, right. It's all, the transition hard. might be too much. And they had to do it themselves, yep. everything. They had to get online. They had to, right, right, right. Okay. Interesting, fascinating. Yes. You might find some uh, textual support for this idea, too, because chinam is an interesting word. literally means free. But uh, just like rekam means empty from the word reik and the mem is sort of added, mm-hmm. chinam is nothing but the idea of chen with mem added, so free. But Chen is a word that's used often with Kosh So maybe when they were saying Chinam, they were referring to the, the Lord, Kosh Borchu's Chen, that they were without it, but they were happy about that. Interesting, 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 fascinating. Okay, very interesting, very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's interesting you say that the Mitzvah kind of constrained them, but I think when you look at like the Haredim in, in Israel, not here, but it's different. Mm-hmm. But I think that they actually prefer that because they don't have to think. They think it's not that they don't have to think and they don't want to think, but it's more it's more it's trust in Hashem mm-hmm. and you know just it's an easy life. You know who do I vote for? Whoever the Rav says, that's why I vote right. for. And it's a straight path. I mean, here even like Brachot and the A Rub and so forth, that really came with the, the later. Rabbinic, that's later. right. That's right. So what were their constraints here? What was it that they were really complaining? They really it's, it was an easier life to say, okay, we just have to trust in Hashem and follow. And they rejected that easy life. You're saying and they. And they, they, they rejected that, which is today, too. You'll have some that'll say, you know, but today it's definitely much more complex. Correct. Absolutely. You're right. You're right. In terms of what those restrictions are. But imagine, again, coming from a world with zero restrictions to even just the biblical mitzvot is, it's immense. It's immense. And the slave, there's huge restrictions. Sure, 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 sure. Also, I, they didn't I, have a choice. They didn't have a choice. That's true, too. That's true, too. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear. And, you know, in some, yeah, I, I those are fair points, right? Ultimately, ultimately, it's, it's a shocking passage, ultimately, because, you know, we have to make some sense of it, and, it, and it, it's very hard to make sense because they did have restrictions. So, you know, but there is a difference, you know, between going back to your barracks and, and you know, and as a, you know, Judaism is unique. Well, not, it's, I shouldn't say it's unique. It's different than a regular civil code in the sense that in America, to be a good citizen in America is do no harm, right? That's ultimately our responsibility, do no harm. Judaism demands much more of us, right? Just think of the last of the Ten Commandments. Don't covet, don't be jealous. Like, that's in my brain. Get out of my head. You know, like, what are you doing over here? Like, it's one thing I'm not, but what? Like, relax. You know, but but it's it's there is an intensity which, yeah, clearly they were they were they were they were troubled by. But yes, I'm not, yeah, okay. So now you know to your question, what's the the month? Now you know now the Torah interjects and oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Pasuk vav uh, verse six. now nafsheinu yevesha. Our soul is is dry. Ain kol. There is nothing. Bilti elaman einenu. Uh, the only thing we have, are, the, the only thing our eyes look towards is the man, right? All they have is the man. And, you know, the, the commentators, the Nitziv, and others understand that, again, on the one hand, the man is something which, which takes care of all their needs. At the same time, there's something very human about wanting variation. You know, most people do not, most people, you know, do not have the exact same thing every single day, right? 
We want some variation. We wear a different color clothing. We have a different thing for breakfast. Maybe we have a different thing for dessert. Like, it's, 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 nor- it's, it's somewhat normal to want that. And they're basically living a life where it's taken care of, but it's, you know, nafshin and is like, it's dry. It's like, we want excitement. We want something, you know, to awaken us a little bit. And we feel like it's too monotonous. It's too, like, it's the same, you know, it's, it's, it's like Groundhog Day. Like, every day is the same, the same thing. It's just like, we want, we want more. We want more. Okay. And now the Torah now goes ahead and interjects and just tells us, hey, by the way, the, God, the, the man was great. Okay. It says, the man kizra gadhu. The man was like a coriander seed. Okay. And its appearance was like the appearance of a crystal. Okay. So basically, it seems like the, the coriander seed is more about the shape. Uh, it looked like a crystal. It had this very, so the Torah is telling us, yeah, maybe it's true in the sense that it's all the same, but it wasn't like this, uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, whatever, they served in this army, like a can of like sardines. It had a very nice look. It had a nice, you know, a nice texture. It was something which had something to it. Okay. Now it tells us how they got the man. Shatu ha'am vilaktu. So the people would walk around and gather it, and our commentators tell us that, and this actually some suggest is part of where the complaints came about, that depends on a person's stature, meaning spiritual stature, that's how close the man would fall to their house. So when it says that they walked around and gathered it, right? So this is a little bit, you know, in our day and age where every kid gets a trophy, this doesn't sit well, right? But, but basically, if you were doing well, you had a good day yesterday... You know it, your neighbors know it too, because you woke up and you just got like your newspaper out to the door. If you didn't do so well yesterday, you're walking down the block, right? So it's, which is, which some suggest is actually part of the cause of their complaint, although they're not saying that explicitly, but it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to have, again, it's part of that same idea of the proximity to God. You know, you and I, we don't know. This person we think is a great person. They're not. This person we think is terrible. They are. We don't know. We have private lives, right? But over there, it's to live with that intensity. Every day, you get a grade, right? My, my, son, has, my son is in a class where his teacher says, a day without te- a test is a day without sunshine. Okay? Thank God they're not in New York City right now. There is no sunshine. But, uh, but, but, uh, but, but the point is that like, every day to get graded on your, on your morals, on your, on your behavior, that's intense. That's intense, right? We can understand a little bit of where this is coming from, right? So, so that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. Okay, so what do they do with it? They ground it in a mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot. They made it into cakes. And it tasted like the taste of an oil cake. I don't know exactly what an oil cake is, but it seems like something, most understand this to me, something was tasty. It had a good taste to it. So, Sorry? A cinnamon. A cinnamon bun. Okay, I'll have cinnamon buns. That sounds great, right? Um, so that's, you know, most understand that it had a good taste. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Midrashic teaching, which says that, that you could, whatever you wanted it to taste like, it would taste like. That's not the simple read of the text. The text tells us it had a particular taste, but it tastes like a yummy cake. Can't go wrong. Cake three times a day, healthy cake three times a day. Life is good. Life is good. Okay. And when the dew would fall over the, the, the camp where they were living at night, Yered Haman Alav. Okay, then the man would fall on, on it. Right? So, right, that basically God would, you know, think they're in the sand, they're in these, you know, basically there'd be like a thin layer and the man would seem as like very, very uh, like low, low density. And so it would like just lay on the man, the man, the, excuse me, the dew. There'd be a thin layer of dew on the ground and there'd be the man on top of it, meaning that it would be protected from the sand. They could pick it up and it'd be great. Right? So why is the Torah telling us this? The Torah is telling us this because they're complaining that the man is not stimulating. And God is responding, the Torah is responding, it's not entirely true. It had, it looked like a crystal, 
Do you all like looking at crystals? I like looking at crystals. They're nice. They're pretty, right? And it had, you know, and basically they would, they would, it wasn't just one thing. It wasn't like, okay, here's the mud, slop it down, like slop, you know, and you basically eat it. No, they, they could, they could grind it into something. They could bake it. They could do all different things. The mud was like tofu. You know, you can make it into all different things and it had a good taste and it had a good taste. So this complaint that they said it was nothing, there's some truth to that, but at the same time, it, it wasn't like absent any variation. It wasn't blah. It wasn't just pure vanilla. It had something, you know, which, which a person's able to, um, you know, make it into something a little bit more stimulating. Okay. Okay. So again, let's just keep in mind what's happening over here. Stage number one is the Jewish people are a bunch of kvetchers, right? And they, they were just complaining. God punishes them. They don't learn their lesson. And now the Asaf Suf, the, the people who join the Jews are complaining. The Jewish people join them in the complaints. They're complaining about the fact that we don't have meat. God says, that's not true. You have delicious things. Okay. And now let's see Moshe now is going to get more involved. The first case, if you remember, Moshe didn't involve himself, but now they're complaining about the man. And Moshe gets involved. We have to ask ourselves, why now does he get bothered? And why the first time when they were just kvetching in general, he wasn't as bothered, right? You re- with me? In other words, in Pasuk Aleph, in verse 1, the Jewish people are kvetching as well. There it says, God hears and God gets angry. Now they're complaining again about the food they're eating. And Moshe, as we're about to read, let's just read it. Vayishma Moshe, so I'm from verse 10, Pasuk Yud. Vayishma Moshe, so Moshe hears the nation. Bochel mishbechosav, crying, uh, to their families, each lefesach ahalo, each person by their door, vayichar af Hashem me'od, and it was and God was very angry, uvoene Moshe ra, and it was bad in the eyes of Moshe. So, anyone have any thoughts why Moshe is bothered this time and not last time? Any thoughts? Again, when they fetch in general, he's not bothered, but now they fetch about the food. What do you mean? Like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Okay, good, good. We're going to come back to that point. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Okay, let's hold, let's hold on to that idea. Let's hold on to that question. Let's, let's keep on reading. And here Moshe is going to, uh, this, is a vi- this is Moshe's, what we'll call, to some extent, Moshe's breaking points. Okay, and we'll see that. Pasagut Aleph. Vayomer Moshe Lashem. Moshe now turns to God. And he says, Lama hariosa leavdecha. Why did you do evil to your servant? These are very harsh words that God is... Now, Moshe, imagine saying that to God. As he says, God, why do you do evil to your servants? And why didn't I find favor in your eyes? What is he talking about? To place the burden of this nation upon me. Moshe says, God, why are you punishing me? Why do you give me this impossible job? And remember, Moshe, when God first asked Moshe to take over as to become the leader of the Jewish people, what did Moshe say? I can't do it. They're too difficult. And now Moshe is saying, God, why don't you listen to me? What are you doing to me? Why are you making my life so miserable? Okay, he continues. Did I give birth to this nation? In other words, when you bring a child into the world, there's a certain, you know, uh, booklet which comes along or a certain certificate which says, you're responsible for this thing forever, essentially. Okay, maybe you could pretend when they're an adult, maybe not, but you're essentially responsible. Moshe says, I didn't give birth to these people. They're not my children, right? Right? Did I give birth to them? He somewhere alive that you say to me, hold on to them in your chest, like a nurse takes care of a, a, a baby that is nursing, on the earth, which you promised their fathers. In other words, you know, what, what Moshe is saying is, had this been a natural relationship, okay, it's one thing. If I was like the father of this group of people, okay, then I'm responsible. Moshe saying, I had nothing, again, Moshe ran away from the Mitzrayim and from the Jewish people. He had nothing to do with them. And God says, you got to come back. 
Right? Moshe is an outsider. Moshe didn't grow up among the Jewish people. Moshe is, Moshe lived, left Egypt. He had nothing to do with them. And God slaps him back and says, you take over. Moshe says, they're not my natural, you know, people. Why are you giving me this, uh, this, this responsibility? So I want to just make two observations before we continue. First of all, in the English, let's see, let's see how it's translated. Uh, in verse 12, they say, okay, we're on the top of the page. Like a nurse carries a stocking. Okay. So in English, the word nurse is, is, could be male or female. Right? right, right, In Hebrew, in Hebrew, there's no every word is either masculine or feminine. Right? It's very interesting. The Torah over here says kasher yisa es haomein, like the nurse, the male nurse carries the baby who's nursing. Right? That's what he's saying. That's the analogy he's giving God. Why you ask me to be like the male nurse that, that carries the baby who's nursing? Now, a female, a female nurse when they have a baby who's nursing could theoretically nurse the baby. What does a male nurse do when they're with a baby that's, that that needs milk? Gives it to the mother, okay. He gets frustrated. Gets frustrated. Holds on to the baby. Tries to sue the baby, but really has no solution, right? It's such a beautiful insight that so this is where Ruvri and Magrolis makes this point. In other words, the Torah is over here telling us Moshe, underst- Moshe is explaining really the job of a leader. What's the job of a leader? The job of a leader is not to provide the solution. Very often, the leader is unable to provide. If, if the leader can, great. But quite often, think about, forget a leader. What does a friend do? Right? What does a spouse do? What does a family member do? Someone comes to you with a complaint. Okay? So this is a very male-female thing. What does a man do? A man says, this is the solution. Right? But we know oftentimes that's not really what's needed. Right? Moshe understood. He refers to himself as a male nurse for a baby that needs milk. That means he cannot provide the solution, but he's there to soothe the baby. That's what it means to be not just a leader, but to be a friend, to be a family member. We really can't fix things. What we really need to do is be that male nurse to provide that sense of comfort as best we can, even though we can't provide the solution. Isn't that a brilliant observation insight? And that's, Moshe understands his job. He's just saying, I can't do it. But he's saying, look, I can't, I can't keep on soothing them, right? But that's, he understands his job as an omen, a male nurse for a baby that needs milk. Okay, that's, that's insight number one. Insight number two I want to bring up is that when did God, where did God tell Moshe, what, what was Moshe's instructions when God told him to lead the Jewish people? What did he tell Moshe to do? Trivia question, okay, it's not so easy. What was the instructions? Paraphrase. Don't give me exact words. What did God tell Moshe? God appears to Moshe at the burning bush and tells him to do? What does he tell him to do? Leave the people out of Egypt. Leave the people out of Egypt. Good. Then he tells him, he says, one more detail. He says, leave the people out of Egypt and bring them back to this mountain, i.e. Har Sinai. Okay? Did Moshe, was Moshe responsible beyond that? Moshe is told, that's exactly what he's told. Take the Jews out of Egypt and give them the Torah. There's no mention of Moshe being the one who is supposed to lead them through the desert into the land of Israel. Really? Really, really. So where in the world does Moshe start complaining to God, God, why did you give me this job? Huh, I never gave you this job. Right? So what's Moshe talking about? Why is God, Moshe saying, and it seems like he's right. It seems like he's right. But, you know, but, but basically, wait, what, is he refer, what is he referring to when he says that, uh, that, you know, that you gave me this job, you didn't really give him this job? So Chaim Shmulevitz, a great, uh, great thinker of the 20th century, suggests a beautiful idea. He says, you know, God doesn't speak to me and you. I mean, if he does, we should probably talk, right? In other words, we don't, we don't hear God's voice in a direct fashion. We see things, we imp- in- intuit that God is sending us a message, but God doesn't speak to us in a voice and say, hey, you know, you should do X, you should do Y. We, that, that's not a voice that we presumably are hearing. But God is, so we have a question maybe we have to ask ourselves. Maybe we usually we ask ourselves this question. Unfortunately, only as we're teens or young adults and we sometimes at one point really stop asking ourselves this question. But it's a critical question that we need to ask ourselves at every single stage of life. And what is that? The question is, 
what does God want from me? What does God want me to do? In other words, I know I have mitzvahs. I got it. But there's a me. God put my soul into this world. And what does he want me to do? Right? Usually, again, unfortunately, we stop thinking about our own. Uni- we think about like, getting through the next day at, at some point in our life. We, you know, those questions, unfortunately, we don't always have the energy to ask those questions. But it's a critical question. Every day I wake up with, with the ability to breathe, God is telling me that he wants me here. And I have to ask, so God, what do you want me here? He doesn't answer us. So how do we know the answer? So it says, Rechaim Shalom is very simple. We look in the mirror and we know what our skills are. We know what our deficiencies are. And if we don't, we work harder to have a better sense of who we are. And we figure out what we're good at. And we look around and we see what the needs are. Then that's how we know what we need to do. God doesn't have to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, you need to do X, Y, Z. God is waking me up in the morning and God is giving me certain qualities and certain lack of qualities and a world around me. And I need to figure, and, and though I, I'm able on my own to figure out what that is. That is God speaking to me. So God, what Rav Chaim Shalom is saying over here is that God, although he never said the words explicitly to Moshe, Moshe understood. If I was capable of taking them from point A to point B and I look around, I'm still the most qualified guy to take them from point B to point C. So even though God never said those words explicitly, God did say those words, right? We're going to come to heaven at 120, God willing, right? And God's going to say to us, hey, why didn't you uh, start this initiative? Why didn't you become this, uh, you know, learn this book? Why didn't you become this, this, this person? You say, no one told me to. It doesn't say anywhere that I'm supposed to do this. And God will say, I gave you qualities. I, I gave you your, your community around you. Yes, I did. I told it to you. That is, right, it is expected of us to intuit by looking around and asking ourselves these questions. It's as if, God has said those words. And that's why Moshe could actually say with a straight face, God, why do you tell me to do this? Even though he didn't say those words, he understood this, what God wanted him to do. And all of us should be able to intuit what God wants us to do. That's a harsh, right? Not a harsh, it's a high bar. It's a high bar. God is basically telling us that we're not going to get away with saying, no one told me to do so. That's not an excuse in our world. And the only excuse is I've tried, I tried, I tried. I think this is what I'm supposed to do. I've tried my best. I wasn't able to. That's an excuse. But to say I didn't, without asking ourselves that question constantly of what I'm supposed to be doing in this life, then we're, we're ignoring God's words. Yes. I feel like I'm doing a lot more as I'm getting older. And then I think, what else can I do? And I hear, go visit people in nursing homes. I hear it. Amazing. Amazing. And I'm doing that because, and then when I do that, I'm going to ask what else can I do? Good, good, good. I wouldn't say, right, that's not a prophecy. It's your neshama speaking. It's your conscious speaking. It's telling you what to do. And that's great. That's great. That's, that's exactly, that is, Estelle, you're a model of what, what we're talking about. Yes, there is no sense of a certain age where you say, ah, I've clocked in, I've done enough. And now I get to sit back with a tequila on the beach. No such thing. As Jews, we don't believe that. As Jews, we believe you're entitled to sit on the beach with a tequila. Don't get me wrong. And I'll do the same. But, but, but at the end of the day, we, we rest up and we go back again. We ask, what do I need to be doing today? And, and what I did yesterday, I, I, at some point, I need to do more. It's not enough what I did yesterday. We, we keep on raising the bar. That is... That is... After Fleischer, I used to wait one hour. Okay. Next year, I waited two hours. Okay. Now you wait two days. No, I'm just kidding. Three hours. <laughs> Amazing. Estelle, rock on. Rock on. Uh, 10 minutes is hard, whichever hour. <laughs> you have to get oat milk. Uh, <laughs> get oat milk, you don't miss Make it. Make life easy, right? <laughs> okay. Let's go further. Let's go further. Says, says Moshe Rabbeinu, verse 14. <laughs> I cannot carry this nation. I cannot carry this nation because it's too heavy for me. And here it gets to the breaking point. If this is what you want me to do, to keep on taking them, He says, take my life. 
Moshe, Moshe recognizes this is the purpose of life, and it's not working. And he says basically, right, this is, this is, this is strong. Moshe is saying basically, God, I cannot live like this, literally. Take my life. Those are very dark words. This is really, truly, and again, this is chaval, it's a pity that the section gets glossed over. This is such a powerful moment in Moshe's life. Moshe, like, really reaches the, the bottom, rock bottom over here. Moshe's basically saying, I have no will to live at all. If I found favor in your eyes, take me back. And let me not see the evil. Okay. The average person never knew that about Moshe. Correct. Well, it's unfortunate. It's, it's an explicit verse, but we don't, you're right. We don't read this. We don't read this. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I have a strange question sure. to ask. So when I think about the Gedolim Hador, in, you know, they've had so many burdens that have been put upon them. Now, I don't talk to them the way we're intimately talking to Moshe. That's right. And they seem to just do what Hashem sends of them. Right. So how is it that the greatest of the great is complaining. I, I'm having a hard time Okay, with that. so it's a great question. I'll, I'll t- so again, um, okay, I'll share with you something that Rav Yitzchak Kutner, uh, one of the great gedolim of the 20th century, wrote in a letter. It's one of my favorite letters. Um, and he writes, he's writing to students who's struggling in his own spiritual life in whatever way. We don't know what the struggles are, but he's writing back to the students who left the yeshiva. He's, he's a young man now. He's whatever, he's living his life. And, and he writes about some of his spiritual, you know, downfalls. And his teacher, Rav Yitzchak Kutner, again, was one of the great, great thinkers and great leaders, even one of the main uh, architects of, of American Jewry um, in the second half of the 20th century. Um, he writes, he says, you know, it's such a pity that all the books that we have of the Gedolim, of these great people, are written, you know, what we would call in a hagiographic fashion. They're written with only the, the good stuff, right? And even then, some of it's probably a little bit exaggerated, right? They woke up, they were born, they said mashahakal on their mother's milk, they were finished mishnayas by the time they were two, you know, whatever, you know, and, and he says, it's not, he said, you think the Chafetz Chaim was born the Chafetz Chaim, or the Chafetz Chaim, the greatest age of the 20th century, early 20th century, you think he was born the Chafetz Chaim? You don't think he stumbled? You don't think he fell? You don't think he had incredible challenges? He says, on the contrary, he says, it's such a pity because what makes a person great is their ability to crash we don't ask for the crash. That's human. The question is what we do after that. And we learn and we grow from those crashes. He says, you know, he says there's a verse in, in, in Koelis which says, Sheva yipal tzadik vikam. That a righteous person falls seven times and gets up. He says the fools think that it just means a righteous person along the way, they fall and they get up. They fall and they get up. They fall and get up. Good. He says, no, no. It's explaining to us how to become a tzadik. It's not just telling us this righteous person, he happens to fall, you know, made a mistake. Then he, then he or she gets up and then he, they have a mistake again. They get up again. No, 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 no. You want to know how to become a tzaddik? You fall and you learn from that fall and you get up again. And you're not done. You're going to fall again. And you're going to learn from that mistake and you're going to go up a little bit higher. And you're going to have the next mistake and you're going to up and get a little bit higher. That is the prerequisite for becoming a tzaddik. So I refuse to believe personally that yes, a, a good person, did Moshe, you know, turns the people with compassion. You know, he's talking to God. There's a private conversation with God um, and he's crashing and he's burning and this is, this is bad. But at the same, you know, and, 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 and as we'll see, he gets up again. You know, the next parsha, he's teaching them laws a moment later, right? In other words, Moshe's greatness is not the fact that he doesn't stumble and I refuse to believe that our great leaders today and always didn't stumble in whatever way. Okay, they had tact. They recognized that as a leader, it would be, you know, perhaps not appropriate to come and say, guys, I'm having a really terrible day. Maybe in this day and age, you could pull that off. I don't think that would work. Uh, you know, all, all, all that long. It's just, you know, they put on a brave face like we do. Like we all do. We go to, you know, we go to, we go to work. We wake up the next day, put on a brave face. Does that mean that there isn't a personal crash of sorts, a personal downfall? 
not the slightest. So I, I would I would suggest that probably those people who the, the people who who are truly great, they would this would resonate with them. I believe. I believe. Thank you for asking that. Okay. So. Um, Okay, so let's, let's, let's try to understand, uh, really, maybe two approaches in understanding Moshe's despair, okay? Why is Moshe despairing here more than anywhere else? He doesn't, you know, he, he hits a bunch of roadblocks along the way, uh, and it only gets worse. So on the one hand, we could say that maybe he learned from here, and that enabled him, right? Soon there's going to be this real mutiny. Uh, we're going to read Parshas Korach, where there's really a rebel, explicit rebellion against Moshe, and Moshe is pretty even-heeled. Right? It could be that he learned from this experience, but we also have to ask, like, this is the one place we find Moshe's despair more than anywhere else. We have to wonder, what is it about this particular, these particular complaints that is making Moshe so despondent? Is this before the golden calf? This is after the golden calf. After. after the golden calf. Okay? So, two approaches I want to share with you. One is from the Malbim. We asked a question before, you know, even in these two sections we just read, the first time they complain, only God is angry. The second time they complain, Moshe is angry. And we asked what, is, what it is. We'll come back to your approach in a second. But one approach is that out of all the things they're complaining about, they're ultimately complaining about the food they're eating, about the mun they're eating. There's a tradition. There's a tradition that there was three miracles taking place in the desert. What are they? Mun was one of them. Clouds of glory. And most important, water, right? Now we have a tradition that different people are associated with the different miracles. There were three leaders of the Jewish people at the time. Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. Okay? Right? The family, the three siblings. The water comes from Miriam. Okay? The clouds of glory come from Aaron. How do we know that, by the way? Because immediately after each one of them dies, when, Mo- when Miriam dies, the water stops. When Aaron dies, the clouds stop. Right? So we know that the clouds came in the merits of Aaron. The water comes in the merits of, um, uh, of Miriam. Who is the man come in the honor of, in the, in the merit of? Moshe. Right? So when they're dissatisfied, right? When they're dissatisfied about the food, it's not just food. This is about him. This is about Moshe, right? This is a little bit more personal than we initially thought, right? If they're complaining about the man, we have to dig a little bit deeper. Let, let, so let's do that. Let's, you're right, with me? In other words, if they're complaining about the man, they're not complaining about the water, not complaining about the clouds of glory, they're complaining about the man in particular. This seems to be in some way personal. Let, let's, let's dig a little bit. In what way is it personal? You know, the man at the end of the day, you know, our sages teach us, uh, the, the Midrashim say that the Jewish people did not use, uh, relieve themselves in the time of the desert. Why? Because the man is a food that falls from heaven. You know, at, when we eat food, why do we use the restroom? Because we let go of the waste. We keep the good, we let go of the waste, right? If it's spiritual food, if it's food that comes from heaven, there ain't no waste, right? It's all, it's whatever, I, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but there's no waste. Okay, it's, whatever it might mean, right? The point is that this is spiritual food. And Moshe, and we spoke about this a little bit a few weeks ago when we introduced Bamidbar, Moshe is the spiritual persona par excellence. Moshe's entire, remember with the hitting of the rock we spoke about, Moshe lives on this supernatural plane. Everything about Moshe is supernatural, right? Moshe, basically, the man is, you know, the water is just regular water, but the man is basically something totally radical. They're used to eating regular, like a hamburger and, you know, a hamburger and pizza, and now they're eating... Man, like what is this, right? It's something which is highly spiritual. And what the Jewish people are saying, right? The Jewish people are saying is that we want something, we want a more physical existence. We don't like all this spiritual stuff. We want the hamburger. We want the, you know, we want physical comforts. We don't want the spiritual, right? And think about what does Moshe say? He says, I'm not their parent. I'm not the one who gives them milk. I'm not the one who hugs them and holds them. And as Moshe understood his qualities Whereas he was not the lovey-dovey, compassionate, listener type of leader. That wasn't his thing. He was the teacher, Moshe Rabbeinu. He is the teacher of the Jewish people. He is the one who represents spirituality. And the Jewish people were basically saying, 
We're tired of this stuff. We want, we want more physical. We want the hug of the parents. We want the compassion of the parents. We want the physical food of the parents. And so perhaps one, ele- one reason why Moshe's uh, so, he's responding so strongly over here is because he realizes it's not just the Jewish people in general are, are, are kvetching. It's, you know, he recognizes the whole reason he's here is because he's supposed to be leading the Jewish people and they're not interested in his leadership. So he says, this is my raison d'etre. This is my purpose in life and it's not working. Right? Imagine, you know, if you were, you know, this is, you, this is it. Like, there's no greater role in Jewish history than the role he's given. And basically, he's being told by everyone, you know, his popularity rate, if we use, you know, modern terms, has plummeted. It's at 1%. No one likes him. And Moshe's like, so what am I doing here? What am I doing here? I'm killing myself every day for the Jewish people, and they're not interested in my, in my leadership. So he feels like an abject failure. And so we can understand, whereas the, the sin of the golden calf, or the sin of the spies, or even the sin of Korach, those aren't as personal to Moshe and what he represents, and therefore we can understand that it was a challenge, but he didn't respond the same way. So that'd be, that's one approach, understanding why he's responding that way, because it's basically saying what he's done is meaningless, right? They were rejecting his leadership style more than anything else, okay? That's one approach. Alternatively, alternatively, Rav Hirsch suggests something I think a little bit more, uh, a little broader, um, and that really goes back to something we mentioned earlier. And that is that Moshe understands at this point, and, and you touched upon this a moment ago, Richard, and that is that the Jewish people are basically complaining about food. They're in the process, they just received the Torah. They're about to make their way to the Holy Land to become a light onto the nations, to change the course of history. And they're complaining they're not getting enough steaks. Enough, enough steaks, like steak, like a steak, like a steaks. steak, right? Yeah. In other words, if they're complaining, and this we saw with the word chinam, if they're complaining about these insignificant things, then Moshe realizes his entire mission, he's been trying to cultivate within them, you are mamlechet kohanim, you are a kingdom of priests, you are a, you know, you are the chosen people of God. And they're like, where's the next bathroom stop? Like, they are completely out of it. They are completely disconnected from the vision, this incredible vision he's trying to paint for them. He's like, I failed. Moshe basically has failed because he recognizes that he had one mission, not just to physically take them from Egypt to Sinai to Israel. He had a mission to make them worthy, to broaden their perspectives, to make them not, no longer slaves, but to be people who want to receive the Torah, to be people who want to cultivate the land of Israel. And he realizes through these complaints... That he's failed. Yes. So interesting. Also, I mean, when he says, I'm not their father, you know, you have a connection genetically to your children when you're raising them. He must have been so lonely because he looks and he says, they're nothing like me. I have this spiritual concept. That's a good point. And, they, and, and this is not a spiritual people. These, you know, my children are disappointed me. They're not my children. Right. They're nothing like me. Right. Right. And here I am all alone trying to bring up people who have nothing to do with me. That's right. So, that's, right. that's right. That's right. Yes, he most that definitely. generation doesn't live to go into yes, the land. Yes, absolutely. All of these stories over here are basically leading us to that same conclusion. They are not worthy. Now, also, Moshe is not worthy for a different reason, which we touched upon. We'll come back to it at a later point. But ultimately, this generation, he's right. He's right. This generation is not the generation that is worthy of, that, of, the, of the, this big vision, right? So, so again, let, the, both those approaches are more or less saying something similar. They're both, 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 both of them are saying that when a person, you know, when a person thinks, this is why I'm here, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And again, let, let's just summarize a little bit. We saw from Chaim Shmulevitz that it is incumbent upon all of us to ask ourselves, if not daily, then weekly, if not weekly, then monthly, often, what am I supposed to be doing in my life, in my circumstance, with my, my, with my means, with what I have? 
It's a question that we are responsible to, we are, all of us are, are obligated to ask ourselves, what am I doing? What am I accomplishing? Okay? That's, that's takeaway number one, I would say. Takeaway number two is what we're then learning. And that is that sometimes when we have this vision and it's completely crashing, then, you know, when we think about why we're, why we're feeling so despondent, oftentimes because our explicit or implicit vision of what we want to do is falling short. Like what we want to accomplish is, is not happening. And Moshe over here had a vision, had a goal, had things that he thought he was supposed to do. And he's realizing it's not working out. And when that happens, obviously we crash. We feel terrible. But I think there's one more insight, which we touched on earlier, that I think is important for us to take as well. And that is the experience of the Jewish people. The fact that they were complaining so much. What, what was that a reflection of? A reflection of the fact that they lost sight of the big picture that they no longer had a big picture, right? When we are doing what we need to do, nothing gets in the way, right? When you have a mission, when you have something you need to do, it doesn't matter. Everything can be going wrong. I need to accomplish this. And so I think there's an important, at the very least, the very least message we have to take for ourselves, and that is that when we find ourselves being caught up by the petty things, by the small things, we all know what those are for our own lives, and this is bothering me and that's bothering me, it's time to pause and ask ourselves that big question. If everything small thing is bothering me, that means that I'm not, being, I'm not driven right now. I'm, I don't have something that's lighting my fire, that's giving me uh, something bigger than what's right over here. What, slave mentality. You could call it slave mentality. You know, it, it, what I'll call it is some level of burnout, which we all experience. And what I, what I'm, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting is that when we feel that level of burnout, it's worth asking ourselves the question, what is the big picture of my life? If I'm feeling kvetchy about everything, then chances are it's time to realign. It's time to sit down with a piece of paper or with a good friend and ask myself, hey, maybe I should be doing something a little bit differently, okay? Right? Because if everything small thing is bothering me, then that means that I'm not being lifted above them. And therefore, it's time to pause. And so I think we have a lot to learn from the kvetching of the Jewish people. A, obviously, kvetching is something which God tells us in the first opening line, something we want to avoid. Uh, but it also tells us, it gives us insight in terms of recognizing when do we kvetch? We kvetch when we have nothing driving us. We kvetch when, when we feel like our life is a burden. We have, we have something that lifts us up, then all the small things don't matter at all. We could eat man every day. We could eat whatever. We could eat you know, sardines every day when something is really driving us. And so when we find ourselves being weighed down, it's worth revisiting and asking ourselves the question that we have to ask ourselves anyways, what is my purpose? What is my big picture? And that is, I hope, what we could take away from the, both the complainers as well as Moshe. Thank God, you know, we didn't finish over here. We're not going to read it together. But Moshe bounces back. Moshe is able, and this goes back to that last point that we made earlier, and that is that ultimately Moshe is able to, you know, crash and burn, but lift himself up and be able to rebuild himself. And as we'll see, he's be able to weather incredible, incredible storms to come. Um, and part, part of that might be because he was able to learn the lessons of this falling, because we all fall. What separates the good from the great is the person that's able to learn the lessons from that failing and build up again and become even greater. Thank you. Have a good Shabbos. Great to see you all. Bye.